DiscerningHearts.com presents Communion with Christ, Practical Prayer with Deacon James Keating. Deacon Keating is a professor of spiritual theology at Kenrick Lennon Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He has formerly served as the Director of Theological Formation at the Institute for Priestly Formation. He's the author of numerous books, including Heart of the Diaconate, Remain in Me, Spousal Prayer, and Listening for Truth. He has given more than 400 workshops on moral theology and spirituality and regularly conducts retreats. Communion with Christ, Practical Prayer with Deacon James Keating. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We're examining the Church's teaching on Christian prayer that is found in the Catechism of the Church. In Chapter 1, The Revelation of Prayer, the Church talks about how God seeks us and how that is demonstrated throughout the Old Testament in God's seeking out of the prophets and his call to his people. I think the the fact that God desires us is probably one of the most powerful of all beginning principles of prayer. If we do not believe that God is looking for us and that God desires us, uh, then it just simply becomes our search for meaning. And uh, that's not what prayer is. Prayer is not our search for meaning. Prayer is a response to a presence that has entered our reality. Prayer is our response to someone who is already there. And that someone who is already there is God, and God desires us, even obviously more than we desire Him, in evidence of the second person of the Blessed Trinity becoming flesh and dying for us. It's all the proof we need to know that God desires us more than we desire Him. But as prayer itself, that fact that God desires us is enough to make us slow down, hopefully enter into some level of silence, and to receive the overwhelming truth that God searches for us, God wants a relationship with us. God wants communion with us. And nothing will stop God in trying to achieve this communion with his beloved, the bride, the human race, the church. And uh, this will help our prayer immensely uh, if we receive this truth, first of all, that God desires us. In the Catechism, it says this, in paragraph 2567, man may forget his creator or hide far from his face. He may run after idols or accuse the deity of having abandoned him. Yet the living and true God tirelessly calls each person to the mysterious encounter known as prayer. So we may be going in the opposite direction, but God is tirelessly calling us to this encounter. And it's very important in paragraph 2567, the church says that we may forget God, we may hide from God, or we may run from God, or we may accuse God. These are classic uh, human uh, falsities that we try to um, uh, throw up against God when God gets a little too close. 
because when God gets too close, of course, we are um, afraid that we're going to have to change. He's, he's a transforming presence. So we do hide from God. We hide our face from God when we sin. And we do run after idols, uh, particularly in the Western world, the idol of distraction. And distraction takes on many forms of materialism and consumerism and individualism. And all of the other uh, objects that um, we give our time to and we give our will and our affection to, these are the contemporary idols that we like to uh, replace God with. Particularly, the enemy of prayer is distraction. And uh, that slowing down of our life to receive that overwhelming truth that we're desired helps us not to enter that world of distraction. And probably the, the last one where the Catechism mentions that we accuse God of having abandoned us uh, is a, a situation that evokes great compassion uh, from us toward people who feel so alone and, and lonely, feel so filled with suffering that somehow God has left them. But again, the hope is found in the second person of the Blessed Trinity taking on flesh, entering into all of our sufferings. We have never been abandoned by God in our sufferings. Uh, we've never been without God in our sufferings. God has never left us bereft of his presence. He has entered into every, every aspect of human suffering by dying on the cross. And so there's the possibility that suffering itself can uh, be a way of intimacy, of prayer with God. Even suffering itself can become prayer because of God's great love for us and entering into the human condition as deeply as he did in Jesus. So we don't want to forget God. We don't want to hide from God. We don't want to have endless distractions. And we want to pray for those people who are in such deep suffering that they feel that God has abandoned them. And all these ways, uh, if we push against these things, our prayer life will be much more fruitful. I'm struck with the Church's teaching in the Catechism about the importance of God's continuing call to his people, that they selected those important events in salvation history that we see in the lives of everything from the very creation to the story of Noah to Abraham to Moses. And that teaching is not just found in the Catechism. I'm recalling the great Easter vigil that the Church celebrates as we prepare for that, that celebration of Easter Sunday, the great day of the remembrance of the resurrection, that these stories are in that liturgy too, so that we hear that this important, important teaching about God's continually calling his people. The history of the Old Testament in, on a spiritual level, on the level of prayer, we could really look upon the whole Old Testament as a prayer. There is such incredible conversation, such incredible uh, response from the human uh, element in the Old Testament to the divine initiative. We are always listening to conversations between the main characters in the Old Testament such as Noah or Abraham, having conversations with God. And that is the most elemental of all descriptions of prayer, a conversation with God. We are awestruck when we look at the Old Testament to see that the, the thread that runs through it is simply this response to God's presence. The whole Old Testament is strung together 
by a response in conversation by the main uh, protagonist of the scripture, be it a prophet or be it, be it Moses or Abraham or other patriarchs, but this continual communication between God, who initiates the communication, and the human element that responds. And if we look upon the Old Testament as simply a book of prayer, we can at many uh, points in the Old Testament, in many of the different books that we pick up, we can enter right into the prayer of the patriarchs or the prophets or the Psalms. We can enter right into those prayers ourselves because obviously the Spirit is still breathing in those prayers. The Spirit is still calling through the prayers of the patriarchs and the prophets and the Psalms. And so we can enter into that presence, enter into those prayers ourselves. A lot of times people are sometimes intimidated by the Old Testament. If we look at it upon as a book that we can pray our way through and that we can pray into the prayers and into the conversations that Abraham had with God, that Moses had with God, that the Psalms uh, usher into our consciousness, then this becomes a much more inviting uh, place to linger with God, the Old Testament. When you talk about the Psalms, as opposed to those conversations that occur between individuals, uh, God with Abraham or God with Moses, the Psalms have that personal aspect, but they also have a communal aspect as well, don't they? It's always the individual crying out in the Psalms, but sometimes there is that um, communal aspect crying out in, in, in intercession for uh, Israel, or Israel crying out in a personification, uh, personifying the whole community. So there is never a separation between the individual and the, and the, uh, the community, which is why the church was gifted with the Psalms as the communal prayer, uh, of its official communal prayer, particularly for the clergy and for religious, but many lay people today also pray what's called the Liturgy of the Hours, which is simply the Psalms. And the individual cries out from the Psalms. It's filled with great suffering. It's filled with joy and rejoicing. But mostly the Psalms are filled with praise of God. I praise you, God. I give you thanks. I adore you, God. Even in the midst of difficulties and sufferings, even in the midst of misunderstandings, even in the midst of darkness, the Psalms are these anthropological um, statements about human beings who are encountering their own finitude, their own limit, their own suffering, and they're offering that as a prayer to God. But they're also offering their ecstasy to God and their joy to God and their satisfaction to God, and they're giving God praise for it all. It is uh, quite a, an astounding work, the Psalms. And again, this is most clearly where we can enter into the prayer of the Old Testament. And it may not always be, as they teach novices in religious orders, it may not always be that the mood of the psalm is your personal mood. But we then enter into the mood of the psalms in intercessory prayer for the one who may be suffering, but we're having a fine day or, or we're in good cheer, but someone else may be lonely or hungry. Someone else may be uh, in physical suffering. And the psalm this day that we're praying uh, is prayed for them. And the same would be when on days perhaps we're sad or depressed and it's a, a psalm of exultation or joy. Uh, there are lots of other members of the church and 
other people in the world who are experiencing great joy. And so it's an instruction in love. It's an instruction in empathy, in compassion for other people. And so through the Psalms, the individual is, is bound to the community, and the community speaks to the individual. It, it's quite a wonderful gift by the grace of God to pray these because the individual and the community are never separated then. We'll return in just a moment to Communion with Christ, Practical Prayer with Deacon James Keating. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Litany of Humility O Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being esteemed, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being loved, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being extolled, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being honored, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being praised, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to others, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being consulted, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being approved, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being humiliated, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being despised, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of suffering rebukes, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being calumniated. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being wronged. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being suspected. Deliver me, Jesus. That others may be loved more than I. That others may be esteemed more than I that in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease, that others may be chosen and I set aside, that others may be praised and I unnoticed, that others may be preferred to me in everything, that others may become holier than I, provided that I become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. Amen. We now return to Communion with Christ, Practical Prayer with Deacon James Keating. The role of the prophet in their particular relationship with God and what he calls them to and what they do in relation to that community. And as a second part of that question, are we called to be prophets? 
Well, the key thing, I think, for the prophets is uh, that they really believed God was real, and God acted. And uh, quite often, I think, we have to recoup, and we have to perhaps believe again that we think God acts in our time. We've been so trained to think that uh, miracles are not existent, they are non-existent, that somehow all of the, um, the movements of God in uh, the Old Testament, and in some cases the New Testament, can be explained away through natural means or natural events. We've all been so trained in this way that we almost have to recover the prophetic consciousness. And the prophetic consciousness is that God acts, that God acts in power, and that he is not. God is not an extension of my mind. God is other. If we think when we go into prayer that we're talking to ourselves or that we're meditating or that in some way we're just uh, allowing feelings, subjective feelings to arise, if we really think that's prayer, then of course we will never be transformed by the encounter. We almost have to make an act of faith before we pray. God, I believe you are real. God, I believe you are other than I am. That you are totally other. And that you act in time out of love for us. Lord, I beg you, during my prayer time and during my, my days of living, that I will not hinder you from acting in my life. The prophets never stopped God from acting. They believed God acted. They let him act. In that beautiful story that the uh, Catechism alludes to in paragraph 2583 about Elijah, where is the, the great sacrifice on Mount Carmel, where Elijah is confronted with the followers of the false god Baal, and they set up a contest and they cut a um, they cut a, a steer in half, and they place the uh, the animal, the dead animal, on wood. And Elijah says, uh, "Don't light the fire." And Elijah is going to prove to those who worship the false god, the god with ears that cannot hear, and eyes that cannot see, and mouth that cannot speak. He's going to prove to them that his God, the real God, the only guy, God, acts in time. And so he calls down uh, God, and God brings fire to the Holocaust and burns um, the steer up to the amazement of those who followed the false God. And the writer of the Catechism compares this calling down of God's great act to the Epiclesis at the Eucharist, the coming the silent coming of the power of God in the Holy Spirit. God still acts. God still acts in powerful ways to transform our lives from within, to transform bread, to transform wine into the body and blood of Christ, into the real presence of Jesus. So God is still acting. The prophet believes this. To be a prophet today, we need to believe it too. We need to believe that we're not alone in this world and that we can act in faith and God will be leading us.
And if we are obedient and humble, God will lead us in such a way that he will reveal his acts in our lives. And of course, that's the highest, that's the highest fruit of prayer, is to be someone who is so transparent to God that God reveals his acts in our lives. In, in other words, that person has become prayer. That person has become a total communion with God. Can we hear God speak to us through prophets? Even though I, I think I know the answer, yes, I suppose we could. How do we know when we hear that, that it is actually God's voice and not the prophet's voice? Well, lots of people have tried to set themselves up today as prophets. They, they think that the, they see further and deeper than the church does, the church here being the pope and the bishops in union with the pope, who are under the authority of the word of God. That's the rock-solid promise. Uh, all prophecy, all prophetic utterances are simply someone's opinion, someone's idea, until they are measured against the Pope and the bishops in union with the Pope under the Word of God. If those three uh, elements are in place, the Pope, bishops in union with the Pope, under the Word of God, then we can trust whom that body declares to be prophetic. Uh, otherwise, uh, we are left to um, discern the individual words of people around us, uh, to see ourselves, if the Pope and the bishops are not ready to make a, a judgment yet, to see for ourselves if this person who's doing this teaching uh, is in line with the truth of the Word of God. Uh, we trust our conscience has been formed by the Pope and the bishops under the Word of God. And so, to some extent, those who have so formed their conscience can smell a rat when the rat is present because they have the mind of Christ. They know when something is out of kilter, out of joint. There is an intuitive sense that someone has who has been praying for a long time, who has subjected their conscience to formation under the Pope, the bishops, and the Word of God, in the context particularly of the liturgy. This, this person's mind has been formed in a Catholic sensibility. And so there is a, an intuition, if you will. There is a sense that this person has that something's out of joint with this particular teacher's words. And so I will hold judgment off on this teacher. It doesn't ring true to me in my Catholic mind, a mind that has been uh, given birth to in prayer. And so I'm cautious, I'm prudent. So we know a prophet is a prophet when the church says the person is a prophet. Until such a time, we trust our conscience that has been formed by prayer, by the liturgy, by the teachings of the church. And it will appear, this person's utterances will appear before us and we will intuit, we will judge whether it seems this person is going along with the mind of Christ or is against the mind of Christ. That really does lead us to that teaching in the Catechism under Article 2 in the fullness of time, where they speak of the drama of prayer is fully revealed to us in the Word who became flesh and dwells among us. This Word, which of course is, is Jesus, is the whole object of our prayer. The whole object of our prayer is to have his word resonate in us, 
to have his mind do our thinking for us, to have his heart move us to action in prophetic ways. We want his mind, we, we want his will, we want his heart. And we want to love who he loved, the Father, above all. We want his love loving in us. And this, of course, is the very depths of prayer, to have his love loving in us, to turn us toward the Father as he was always turned toward the Father, to have the Father as the object of our affection and our attention, to have Jesus pray within us, to ask Jesus to pray within us. So, for example, those of us who love the Word, Jesus Christ, after we receive Holy Communion at Mass, to simply ask the Lord, Jesus, take me to the Father, in very simple words. And of course, what we're asking Jesus to do there is to be himself. Lord, please be yourself in my heart. I give you free reign over my heart. For I know that you can only and will only take me to the Father. That's who you, you are. You are the one who was taken to the Father. You are the one that was sent by the Father. And you are the one who came to us to live among us, to heal us and then to die for us so that you could take us to the Father. So as I'm sitting silently after communion is received, very simply I say, Jesus, take me to the Father. And the Word lives within us. The Word we received through the uh, Scripture, the Word we received through the Eucharist. We are at the very apex of prayer, private prayer that is. Notice that private prayer reaches its apex in the very center of communal prayer, the Holy Eucharist, the Mass. So again, you hearken back to that, that uh, tension in the Psalms between the individual and the, and the communal. No separation. The apex of private personal prayer reaches its white-hot center in the very midst of communal prayer, the Holy Eucharist or the Mass. But now we are in reception of Holy Communion, and we are talking to the Word incarnate who now lives in us. And we are begging the Word to be our Word. We truly want His Word to be our Word, His mind to be our mind, His will to be our will, His affections to be our affections. I no longer live, not I, but Christ lives in me. This becomes the desire of the one who prays. This becomes the desire of the one who is desired. I no longer live, not I, but Christ lives in me. In fact, I'm weary of my own thoughts. I'm bored and tired with my own ego. I really want to be taken. I want to be taken by God in prayer. I want to be taken by the second person of the Blessed Trinity. I want to be taken by his Holy Spirit who dwells within me, and I am the temple of that Spirit. Because I'm weary of my own ideas, my own feelings, my own egocentricities. Prayer is our liberation. Prayer is our freedom. Prayer is what we've been waiting for. Prayer is the transforming encounter that gives our life meaning and hope and deepens our joy 
Thank you, Deacon Keating, for your time today. I wish we had more time to reflect on it at this moment, but the good news is we will gather once again to reflect on the teachings of the Church and the Catechism of the Church on Christian prayer. Would you like to close with a prayer and blessing? Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the gift of your Spirit who dwells within us. May your blessing, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, come upon all of us and give us the strength we need to love you and to follow you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Deacon Keating. Thank you. You've been listening to Communion with Christ, Practical Prayer with Deacon James Keating. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Communion with Christ, Practical Prayer with Deacon James Keating.